Hey, all you zombies, uh, we're so very glad that you, you found us here. This is our weekly podcast. My name is Chris Abel, and as always, my co-host over there, Richard Krauss. Mm-hmm. Nice to see you all. Hello, zombie people. Hello, zombie people. Yeah. Wow. I live right downtown, and my windows are open. Uh. <laughs> you call for zombies, you get sirens. I think that's how it always should be. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about, I guess, interactive entertainment. Uh, Richard, you're going to be talking about the the new edition of Night of the Living Dead, mm. and I've got um, some really cool old-fashioned radio audio adventures to talk about oh, as well. Cool. cool. Well, yeah, I saw Night of the Living Dead live at uh, the theater Passmerai, and uh, we missed last. We had some gremlins in the works last week, and uh, we we uh, missed the show last week. Uh, and then uh, we're getting to it late this week, so we're, we're a little late talking about this. But uh, what's happened is the same uh, writer, or one of the same writers behind Evil Dead, the musical, which was a big hit here a few years ago, uh, has teamed up with some producers who found the rights and, and got the, the permission to take Night of the Living Dead, the classic George A. Romero horror film, and turn it into a stage show. And I'll tell you, I thought to myself, at first, and I heard about this about a year and a half ago, and I thought, how could you possibly do that? Because a lot of Night of the Living Dead is uh, people on fire, uh, you know, a lot of, oh, not much happens. There's a lot of space. There's a lot of space in this movie. And, uh, and they found a, a fairly unique structure for it. They have taken the uh, core, the heart and soul, the brains, I guess, of the movie, and put that in the first act. So the first 45 minutes is essentially uh, the movie. You meet the characters. Uh, you know, there's a couple of zombie attacks. Things happen. You get a great sense of what the movie is like. And the set is uh, really interestingly designed. Theater Passmore is not huge, but they've built a large set with uh, 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 areas uh, all over the place where they can have different scenes from the outside world or whatever. And then in the scenes, if you remember the movie, where there's Molotov cocktails thrown and all that stuff, uh, clearly they're not going to light the set on fire. So there's a big screen at the, the top that will say, what's happening outside? And then uh, uh, from the screen are clips from the movie. It shows you what's happening outside the, the building. So it works well. It works very, very well. Then the second half is uh, the, the funnier half. And it, it is, I, I, I mean, I have to point out, it's a comedy. Uh, the first half isn't like slap your knee funny. In fact, the night that I saw it, I think people were unsure whether they could laugh or not, whether they should be laughing at this, even though there are some gags right off the top. Um, it took people a little while to warm up to the idea that, oh, yeah, this isn't just a straight you know, reproduction of the movie. So you have a first act, and then the second act is more speculative. It's more, um, oh, is my mic muted? It says, uh, no. no, I'm hearing you. Good. Um, <laughs> Uh, it says that uh, sounds like you're typing, so we've muted your mic. And I have a feeling it's the sounds from outside that are confusing the, uh, the thing. But so the second half is all speculative, and it is that I wonder what would happen if uh, the women were in charge. I wonder what would happen if this happened. And it's a series of blackouts. So 
uh, you have someone say, hmm, you know, what a mess over there at that house. I wonder what would happen if uh, the women were in charge. Boom, they'll play the scene, then it blacks out, and then it cuts right back to the usually the same two people talking, going, well, that's a mess over at that house. I wonder what would happen if... Uh, you know, the, uh, if they had the proper weapons to fight off these zombies. Maybe there would have been some survivors. And they do this five or six or seven times. And uh, it's interesting to see what the twists are, but it's also where the vast bulk of the, the humor comes from in the play. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, and I guess, I guess in a way that that's kind of how you have to approach it because the, the thing that often happens with horror icons and horror movies is that as the decades pass, we become so familiar with them that yeah. they, they kind of lose their, their, their power. Um, I remember when I went into a store and saw a little plush toy version of Giger's Alien. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and thinking, really? I remember you know, when that movie first came out, that was terrifying. <laughs> Yeah. You know, one of the worst nightmares of your, your your psyche coming out there, and now you can go get little happy keychains and stuff. And so I guess the same thing has kind of happened with Night of the Living Dead that way. Yeah, well, I mean, it, to an extent. I mean, this is, uh, the Night of the Living Dead uh, was so influential for so many people. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, kicked off the, the zombie uh, movies. Like, the, the, idea, the ideas in that movie essentially are the ideas in, uh, the Walking Dead, to a large extent. There, I mean, it's, it, it, it is the template for a lot of stuff that came after it. It's a, it is a source. It is the, a fountain of inspiration for people. And so all that's happened here is they've just taken it down a different road. Now, I have heard that some horror purists are kind of mortified by this. I, I uh, last night, spoke at something called The Black Museum. And the Black Museum uh, is a lecture series uh, that happens at the Big Picture uh, Theater on Gerard Street here. And uh, I, I spoke for a couple of hours about uh, the devils and Raising Hell, my, my book about Ken Russell and the making of the devils. And uh, I was talking that the crowd that comes to the, something called the Black Museum are also people that would go see Night of the Living Dead Live. And uh, I was told that within that uh, crowd there were some people that were not um, as as uh, thrilled with the idea that they've taken this and, and taken it to a new place to, to try something different with it and to add a great deal of humor to it. And, you know, I have to tell you, as a fan of the movie, as a fan of uh, George A. Romero, as, you know, a fan of all that stuff, I was not bothered in any way by this. I thought that I'm just looking for a photo here that I can show you as well. I was not bothered uh, by any of this. I, I thought that uh, it was inventive. I thought that it was um, something that was uh, um, respectful, but still uh, interesting. And I think that that fans uh, should be able to. Uh, there is a little picture from getting ready for the Black Museum last night. Um, I think that fans. Uh, would be um, interested in seeing this because, as I say, the first half, it, while it's not exactly reverential, uh, it does do a good job at getting uh, the, the point of the, of the uh, movie across. And then the second half is a lot of fun. And it's in a theater that has a bar upstairs. You can have a beer while you're watching it. It is meant to be fun. And George Romero is going to be there tonight. That's uh, 
Friday, May 3rd, to uh, do a Q&A afterwards. And he and uh, John Russo, who was his co-writer, and Russ Steiner, who was the man that said, they're coming to get you, Barbara, in the original movie, uh, have all seen it and loved it. Uh, George uh, has been very vocal in his support uh, for this, and the other guys as well have said, listen, it's fun. They've taken something that we did, you know, 40-plus years ago and turned it into something else. And that's uh, fine by them. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, you have to, to, to take in mind that it is theater. Theater is a very different medium from, from film. One of the great, I think, powerful elements of the movie is that you don't hear an audience when you're watching it, that they have that uh, sort of silence, as if the world is, has grown quiet. You've got the, the broadcasts that uh, when they're watching television, there's no music. It's just yeah. the news anchors being very, you know, stern. So it's hard to duplicate that in a theater when you have 300 people all sitting there <coughs> coughing and moving yeah. and shuffling that you kind of have to, to approach it from a different angle. And it's, yeah. it, it's, it's theater. I mean, you're, you can't just play to the diehards. The diehards may treat it like it's Shakespeare, but the rest of the people that are going to be drawn on a Friday night to go out and have a good time, they're looking at the paper, going, to do we go to the Second City? Do we go to the Improv? Hey, let's go to Night of the Living Dead because we love zombies. You kind of have to have that, that fun element, right? No, I agree, and, and, and it is fun. And uh, um, I got a Night of the Living Dead live mug. Pretty cool. fun. They've got swag. <laughs> Uh, so it is fun. It is. It's. It's a good night out. It's. It's. It's a fun night out. And as I say, George likes it. George A. Romero likes it. That's okay by me. I'm fine yeah. with it. And we should mention uh, that our good friend, our mutual friend, Nug Nargang, is in it, and uh, he's fantastic. Uh, Nug is um, a, a, a primarily known, I guess, as uh, an improv comedian. He's one of the geniuses of improv uh, in the, in town, but he's fantastic in this show. And uh, he, uh, he's uh, um, nimble on his feet in a way that I didn't expect for a, a big guy. He's, and Nug is, is very uh, uh, open about it. he's lost a little over 100 pounds lately. And it has made him into, uh, it has added a, a, an almost ballet feel to some of the moves that he does on stage now. He's fantastic. And, uh, and he's very funny. The rest of the cast, equally so. But uh, Nug, for me, was a real standout. Yeah, and uh, I mean, um, when I first heard about this, uh, they contacted me with a nice little email. I did a post on our HeyAllYouZombies.com website, so there's links there, the trailer's there. Uh, I pointed out that tonight's the night to go because George will be there doing a Q&A, and we've talked about this in the past. He never talks about Night of the Living Dead. He doesn't want to talk about zombies, so this is important. If you're going to go, this is the night to go because he's actually going to do the thing he never does, right? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because, you know, imagine being George Romero because everywhere you go, everybody wants to talk to you about zombies. Forty years of everyone saying, so, like, in the first movie, uh, why didn't you call them zombies? You don't use the word zombies. Why not? Forty-plus years of that. And um, I know that uh, I've interviewed him a bunch of times and, and spoken with him uh, many times. And uh, I will often steer the conversation away from that stuff. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about his favorite movie is called Tales of Hoffman, uh, which is a, a, a filmed opera, and he loves it. So I wrote a column a while ago uh, about his love of that movie. And I think he was really pleased to be able to uh, step away uh, from talking about zombies exclusively and, and uh, talk about something else. Yeah, how many times has someone asked him, so why do they eat brains? And he's had to explain, 
I never did that. That that wasn't in my movies. That's somebody else, you know. It must be completely annoying. But it's good to see that. I guess the idea here is that if you're planning to go see Night of the Living Dead live, um, that it, it's kind of a Rocky Horror Picture Show style experience. The uh, second the second half, okay. But, I mean, in the sense that it, they take it as kind of, um, they're trying to create a party atmosphere. I noticed on Twitter they were posting details like, hey, if you come and just buy a T-shirt, you get a free ticket to the show. You know, I mean, there's that rock concert kind of sense to it that it's just come on and have a good time rather than uh, get dressed up and sit down and, and treat it like you're you're watching King Lear. It, it's right. not. It's It's still... You know, it's Night of the Living Dead. It's meant to be a little campy, a little gothic, and, and kind of have fun with it, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. And it is. It is all those things. So uh, I recommend it. I, I give it a big, uh, I don't do thumbs up or thumbs down, but I would give it one of them. I would give it a big thumbs up. <laughs> one one thumbs up, one decapitated. That's know? right. Yeah, yeah, you know, one <laughs> yeah. I give it a zombie thumb up. Uh, well, I wanted to kind of touch in on the same kind of theme with... Um, uh, we're seeing a rise in terms of audio adventure apps for phones. So, right. so games that are only played through audio. Right. Okay, there, there's no, um, I mean, there, there are buttons on the screen, but there's no visuals. You can't see what the game is about. You can't, um, under, you know, everything has to be pictured in your mind, much like you're reading a book, except that you have the atmosphere of sounds to kind of guide you. And right. uh, in particular, the, the first game I want to talk about is called The Night Jar. Um, which just came out, and it stars Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh! And I've, I, I've seen his latest movie already. Have you? Ooh! And I've <laughs> nothing about it. I can't say anything about it, but all I can say is that if I did do thumbs up, oh, yes. It would get, <laughs> it would get that. So that's yeah, all. I can, oh, I can imagine. <laughs> I, <laughs> now, what do you think of him as an actor? I know that the first time you, you came across him, you weren't too sure what to make of the man. Uh, you've had a chance to see him in a, a few more things. Yeah, I will tell you that uh, in, uh, in this unnamed movie uh, that I have seen him in recently that I give a thumbs up to, uh, he does a great villain stare. He, he's, he's mastered this. You know, that thing with that, that menacing look, the over-the-shoulder menacing look. And, and he's good in this. I, I wouldn't have expected him uh, to be uh, as much of an action uh, hero, not hero, villain, an action uh, star as he is in this unnamed movie that I've seen him in. And, uh, and, but he's awfully good. I think, uh, I think he's the real deal. Mm -hmm. uh, he's inspired a huge following of fans that call themselves Cumber Bitches. Uh, and if you go online, uh, all they do is collect animated GIFs of all that kind of stuff that he does. Right. He doesn't do it so much in movies like, say, War Horse, but right. in the, the TV series Sherlock, which I personally love, yeah. he does a lot of it. So there's this right. fantastic GIF that's out there of him just whipping a scarf off as he heads right. off to the, the street. There's, there's a bit of that in, in this unnamed movie, yes. Yeah, and it's odd because I've, I've since seen proper interviews with him. Uh, and he's not that kind of person in real life. Like it's it's odd because you would think because he, he he performs so well in in those action movies and in in TV series like Sherlock that he clearly is someone who grew up reading Lord of the Rings and playing video. No, no, he is <laughs> he is such a, a classical you know um, boarding school kind of guy that he's yeah. grown up 
listening to uh, academic music and reading books. He doesn't really understand this whole world of genre, but he performs, and it's so fantastic. It's, it's just well, amazing. It's interesting because he uh, was sort of typecast for some part of his career as just playing kind of upper-class twits and English things. And he said, I know that I'm, he said, I, I'm not going to apologize from where I came from. Yeah, like his dad's an earl or something. I don't know what it is, but there's something, there's peerage in his family somewhere. And he said, I can't apologize for that. I mean, it's just what it, but he said, I would like to do something other than play, you know, Worcester and Jeeves, you know, I would like to do something a little different than that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a, um, one of the schools, they have those rowing clubs. Yeah. And he actually is has, has his own name plaque. I mean, it's it's it, he comes from that very prim and proper British society. But it's amazing that when he takes on these kinds of roles, even though it's someone who has not developed an imagination to think about things like tentacles and aliens <laughs> and, and stuff, he does a fantastic job. Uh, and that's very true in this game called The Night Jar. Right. I was shocked and surprised that he actually stars in the game because, again, it's not the sort of thing that I would expect to be his own personal interest. Right. But what it is, it's a, it's a game where you put on a pair of headphones. And nowadays, you can uh, generate soundscapes through headphones that give you a complete sense of direction. So it's no longer left and right, right. speaker, but you're, you're hearing all the different points of the compass. And this is a game that takes place on a derelict spaceship. You wake up to discover that something's wrong with the ship, the crew have all abandoned you. It's completely dark. Uh, according to the ship's computer, the ship is headed towards a black hole. Uh, you're in deep trouble. And yeah. so you have to then try to take steps to secure your own survival. And what ends up happening is that you can, for example, hear the crackling of some severed cables just behind your left ear. You can hear a, a door sensor blinking off just in front of you. And you may hear a ship's computer talk to you from the right-hand side. And as you walk around, you can hear your own footsteps echoing from below. So it's, like it's your, just your actual own footsteps, like you're really your footsteps, or they are part of the tune. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, not in real life your footsteps, but your video game footsteps. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. okay. Uh, and so what they do is on the screen they actually have three little icons that you can tap. And so there's a left and a right for walking, and another one that you swipe that's just you turning your head and all the sounds change in your, your, your headphones to kind right. of match with that. And when you wake up in the dark uh, and the ship is talking to you saying, you know, hey, danger, danger, the ship's heading towards the black hole, what you hear off in the distance, and it's, it's amazing how they duplicate sound in terms of the distance. So way off, you can hear a little computer prompt saying, please pick up headset, right. please pick up headset, and you know you end up stepping forward and you can hear your hands picking up a headset and you put it on and it's Benedict Cumberbatch on the other end and he's wow. on a neighboring spaceship he's been monitoring what's happening he's gonna help guide you through this this, uh, this scenario of, of how you try to survive uh, and so it's an amazing experience because it's the kind of thing I think most people tend to avoid it's like oh I have to sit in the dark and picture it all and imagine it and often you know, I think this is the kind of thing that when people experience it's on a school trip to a science center where they have those funky headphones and it's completely boring. I think most people, you know, like when you tell them it's an audio-only adventure, they're just going to, to, to say, I want nothing to do with it. 
yeah. But it works incredibly well, uh, partly because you have Benedict Cumberbatch. Right. Even though he's a guy who probably has, has never played science fiction video games, he's fantastic in terms of giving that voice, that right. sense of paranoia, of describing the situation, of telling you, you know, look, you've been screwed. The crew left. <laughs> but I'm here, I'm going to try to help you. Uh, and as you progress through the game, what is amazing, the guys who developed this, they're just fantastic, is that they create different challenges. So as you move through the ship, uh, you'll walk into different rooms. And there's this great sense of humor. The, the computer, for example, will let you know that there are changes happening. There may be another ship that suddenly docks to your ship. But every time you walk through a different room, the computer will tell you the status update and let you know that there is only one organism on board of which one is human. And then you'll walk into the next room and it'll say there are two organisms on board of which only one is human. <laughs> Fantastic in terms wow. of creating this, this sense of being in the dark and not really knowing what, what's out there. And over time, you can hear something behind you salivating, chittering away with, with, manacled, with manacled teeth. And what they'll do is they'll tell you that you have to kind of step on your screen, but run or creep or sneak to be able to get by and, and not get eaten. And are these new? Is this a, a, a new thing? It's relatively new. So what ended up happening, I would say about two years ago, the company that made this made another game called Papa Sangre right. that uh, I fell in love with. Uh, and it, it kind of did okay. I think the issue was that the, the story that they were telling wasn't really as accessible. It was right. based on the Mexican Day of the Dead. And so the idea was that you were going, uh, crossing over to the underworld to try to rescue a loved one. Right. And right. Uh, it was very, very interesting. And again, the same idea. You'd go through different sort of planes of this, a, a kind of a hell, and you'd have these large boar-like creatures that would be roaming around. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> trying to find you. They're blind, but they can kind of smell you, and they're listening for any kind of sounds. As you're walking through, you can hear in your headphones the sounds that you're making. You walk into a room, and it's suddenly it's sand. So every footstep seems to echo off of the walls, and all these things would come running after you, and you have to start running away from them. It was fantastic in terms of what they put together. But I think it was a bit kind of strange for people because of the Mexican. I'll show you. I ended up doing a, a review on television. And to try to des describe a adventure that has no audio, I put together this costume to give you a sense of what the characters were kind of like. That's cool because I just pulled up a, a, a picture as well from the day of the Day of the Dead. There. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of thing. I the stuff is so cool. The Day of the Dead stuff, but this is what I guess you you create these images in your head while you're playing the game, though. Right, and I think that may have been the problem with their first one is that people aren't necessarily um, uh, familiar with that to be able to have the same kind of imagery whereas being on a derelict spaceship if you've seen aliens then right. you know exactly the scenario that you're involved in. in yeah, fact, I uh, walked away for a second because uh, I wanted to show you this. <laughs> Richard Krause's reference library. Well yeah it just, and it's just random stuff too but this is uh, an Elvis Day of the Dead uh, uh, diorama that I bought in Mexico a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they were the first ones to come up with this kind of adventure and do a really effective job of trying right. to, to create a soundscape. Um, there are, and, and and also just from a story point of view, like in Papa Sangre, 
<laughs> you would enter into a, um, a room, we'll call it, and what you can hear is one sound off in the distance. It's sort of a bling, bling, and that's the exit. And then right. off on the other side of the distance, you would hear a baby crying. And what they explain to you is there are monsters in the room. Uh, and you have a choice. You can just quickly go to the exit, hope you don't get eaten, save yourself. Or you can try and rescue the baby. Right? And the problem being that one, you, even if you're successful to get to the baby without being eaten, the moment you pick up the baby, the baby cries even louder. Right. And so it's now alerting every creature in the room to your, your presence. Right. Uh, and so you end up, you know, depending upon what choice you make, <laughs> either you have this harrowing experience trying to get to the exit, and you'll have to play that several times in order for it to be successful, right. or you cop out and you just leave, and then you have to deal with the guilt of knowing that as you left, they're all munching on that, that poor little baby you right. left behind. Right, right, right. And, and it, the, the, the bing bing of the exit changes as you walk around the room, right? As it would, the sound would as you, as you would walk to a far corner or if you were getting closer to it, right? Completely. So, I mean, it changes not only in terms of distance. So as you're walking towards it, it gets louder. But also, if you make them, you know, if you turn to your left or turn to your right, then its position turns around you. And they're very good in terms of they'll create rooms where there are about six different sounds going. You have to kind of pick out the one that represents the thing that you're looking for. And I've had the experience of walking towards it, but I was just slightly off that I've walked past it. And right. I've heard it distant behind me, and I have to turn around and try to locate and find it. Uh, and just the, the way that they create sounds is so convincing. It's horrifying when you do get caught and you're eating. It's <laughs> lots of bone popping and <laughs> that kind of, oh, just awful. Uh, and in them coming up in just the different types of scenarios. So on the night jar, there's actually a point which you can pick up a, um, a, a blowtorch and try to use that as a weapon. And you can actually hear your, you're holding it in your hand and which direction that you're pointing it at. Really just fantastic. And then they've got other things that are going on. So there's, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch, there's his voice. He represents a man named Dickie. He says he's trying to help you. But as you walk through, if you were very careful and listen, in the background you can hear the ship's computer say, do not trust what you hear. Uh, as, you know, and there's, you, know, wow. you start to kind of wonder, uh, you know, is Dickie really on another ship trying to help you? Uh, you know that there's some alien force that's running around the thing. Is he, you know, exactly that kind of thing. So brilliant in terms of, of creating a very captivating and engaging story. Wow, that's cool. Um, well, today, uh, as we sit here uh, speaking, it's May 3rd. Uh, in, in my world, it's the day that the movie summer season really kicks off because Iron Man is opening uh, this weekend. And uh, that has... Typically, it used to be that the summer season actually started in the summer. Now it doesn't. It starts whenever they release an Iron Man movie. Um, so it's gonna, It's already made 250 million bucks around the world. It's going to, you know, make a hundred million bucks this weekend. Probably, it's big. But uh, what it means that uh, that if you know today is May the third, it means that tomorrow is May the fourth. And may the fourth be with you. Uh, this is me. Uh, sitting in the uh, Yoda Garden at uh, George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch, and um, I just uh, I, this was not taken on May the fourth, but I thought it was appropriate to show it here. And um, let me just find another one here. But we um, 
There we go. That's that's another shot of the Yoda Garden. It's very cool. Um, uh, but uh, you know, today uh, on Canada AM, they had someone from eBay on, and they were talking about May the Fourth and you know all the stuff that goes along with it. And this woman from eBay who had brought in like, like a big furry, uh, um, you know, a Wookie, and she had. All sorts of, I mean, the autographs and you know, stormtrooper outfits, the whole thing. She says that uh, a piece of Star Wars memorabilia of some sort, whether it's a Lego game or a, a suit or a mask or something very valuable like uh, you know, an autograph or a prop from the film or whatever, is sold every four minutes on eBay. That blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> I mean, you know, listen. I know that people love these movies. I am one of them. I'm a, I'm a fan of the, of the Star Wars movies. But that, to me, uh, because, and you know, I mean, I'm guessing, I guess people probably buy the odd, you know, Jar Jar Binks figurine. But it's mostly the original three movies that people, I think, are probably concentrating on. And every four minutes, that's an incredible figure, I thought. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's astonishing just how much stuff has been generated uh, from those original three movies, I mean, you know, yes, the licensing has been just insane, and they, it helps that you have successive generations that kind of have picked it up and moved on with it. But I, you know, in the world of collecting, you're always going after the the rare stuff, and so it's going to be the things that were originally launched in 1977 and 1978 that's going to have, I guess, the highest value and the hardest to find. But I understand that the collecting of original Star Wars stuff has gotten to such an insane degree that even knockoffs are going up high in price. Right, so, right, right. you know, in the, 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 I guess the early 1980s, 1990s, you have places like Turkey, which were doing Turkish Spider-Man and Turkish yeah. Star Wars movies. Yeah. They actually came up with their own crappy action figures that were horrible packaging and just yeah. sort of, you know, things that look like they're, they only cost 2 or $3. And that stuff has its own collector's market where there are certain... Hor horrendous little knockoff action figures that are worth like hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars. That's wild. I mean, I, I'm not surprised by that. Although it's interesting, at uh, the Black Museum last night when I was making this speech, at intermission, I was talking to a guy who runs a memorabilia store, and I won't say which one now because uh, uh, he was complaining a little bit. And he said, "You know, young people don't collect anything." Young people don't collect anything anymore. He uh, he said, you know, for years uh, they sold movie posters, they sold books, uh, you know, then later video and DVDs and all that stuff. And, he said, and there was a booming market for all that stuff. And he said, now young people don't, uh, you know, he said people under 40, I think that pushes it a little bit. But, um, you know, certainly people under 30 uh, aren't as interested in, as I was, I mean, if you look, you know, Look around at this place. Well, I mean, it's just filled with things like this. Um, it's because I like to, you know, I like to have things around me. And apparently, uh, there's a, a generation out there that he says just they're just not buying the stuff in the way that they used to. No, and I mean, maybe digital technology has changed that. I mean, when yeah. you can start just downloading large amounts of stuff, uh, it's and nowadays you have things like Tumblr, you have Pinterest. People are collecting. But they're collecting uh, and creating images online, you know, like animated GIFs of, of Benedict Cumberbatch playing with a scarf and things like that. <laughs> but that becomes sort of the, the collecting habit, as it were, rather than having a real object that you have to bag and board and seal and, and put right. away. But right. I think also, you know, 
the comic book industry. I, I worked in a comic book shop just at the very edge of when that was huge. When right. I remember a guy came in <clears throat> and uh, his father had purchased every X-Men comic book. Right. He didn't read them. He just, you know, he was alive when when X Men number one hit the stores, and he thought I'd buy this. And he bought, I think, the first um, fifty comic books, and then he put them away. And when his son reached, I think, nineteen, he presented it to him and said, "Here you go." His son turned around and sold the collection and bought a car. Right, right, right. And there was a lot of that going on at the time. People kept going to old farmhouses and bringing that stuff into the store, and we would take a look at it and decide whether we'd buy it. But then a couple of years later, it just ended and the reason was uh, when I worked in a comic book shop people that bought for me they didn't buy just one issue they come they came in and bought six right. right because the first one was for their collection the other five was they were planning to come back three months or five months later and sell them back to the store or sell them to other people at right. a profit and that just killed the market it just sort of ended uh, you know anything there, there are you know I want to say that if you have a, a copy of Frank Miller's The Dark Knight that it's worth a lot of money but the truth is there were so many people who bought six or eight copies of that book when it came out it's well, not worth you know well it's interesting I mean I think that the stuff that is truly interesting uh, pop culture wise and that is collectible you know we talk about Star Wars Elvis stuff uh, from the 50s uh, Beatles stuff were all things that were bought uh, without an eye towards collecting. So what I mean by that is that it was, you know, before there was a market for all this stuff. And so what would happen is you'd buy uh, a set of Beetle dolls and you'd play with them and your sister would pull the head off and the, you know, your little brother would pull all the hair out of them or break John's guitar or whatever. And, and then you would forget about them six or eight months after that. The odd person an only child, perhaps someone who you know did you know got them and they went kept them in the box. Maybe they went to the attic or whatever, and then those ones resurfaced thirty years later, and they're worth money. But um, I, I do know that there came a time when it just seemed uh, that everything was supposed to be collectible, and, and not everything is. And people were were uh, collecting everything, creating as you say, creating a glut in, in the collect market and uh, and reducing the prices in such a way that, that you know I mean I think collections are interesting you know if you have a collection of things if you have every Rolling Stone magazine from the 90s probably as a unit they're worth something but not you know individually very likely they're not worth anything but um, I don't know what I would these days I used to collect more stuff I'm just looking around I, I don't really collect things you know in, in sets anymore I don't. And it's a daunting task because I think every um, everybody that puts out stuff is so savvy now in terms of having different variations of different covers. Of Some have metallic covers, some have holograms on them. That it's just even if you were to choose something and try to be a collector of it, it's such a daunting task now to try to get it. I mean, uh, one of our coworkers, Rob T uh, Turner, is a right. huge Skylanders fan. I'm, I'm playing the game just because nobody else, <laughs> for him to have somebody to kind of relate to it. And for him, it's a daunting task to try to go down and track down every little Skylanders toy, some of them that he needs. They'll only sell it if you buy an accessory. And it just, right. even this is something that's not going to be worth value later on. It's just the joy of, of loving that toy and wanting to collect it all is such a big daunting task that I think it's hard for people to kind of really get into it anymore. Well, it's it's also uh, you know interesting. I think that uh, 
you know, what this guy was saying yesterday is that, you know, just nobody, you know, nobody is buying this stuff anymore. And there was another point I was going to make, and it has uh, left my head. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, who knows? It was well, probably fascinating. Yeah, I would say, like, the, the, my father gave me some fantastic advice about collecting. He, um, one of the, before he became successful in his small business as a, a metal and wood engineer and designing things, one of the things he had tried out as a young man was to be an antiques dealer. Right. And so when he saw me uh, putting together a comic book collection, his advice to me was to, to go for the older stuff right. and to choose one thing. Right. So um, based on his advice, I decided I was going to collect Spider-Man. Right. And for a while there, I felt a real re bit of regret because I was going around buying older editions of Spider-Man while all my friends were picking up first editions of uh, Batman the Dark Knight, the very first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comic books, all stuff today. They'd be go, oh, oh, why weren't you you're buying lots of it? But the value on that stuff today is very low because everybody was buying those books. There's lots of them. So the other day I was doing a, a shoot for Studio 12 News and I needed to put a backdrop so I, I pulled out my comic book collection which I haven't looked at in a very long time and ended up thanking my father because <laughs> I have like of the first 100 Spider-Man comic books I have a, a large number of them I have yeah. Spider-Man number two Wow! I don't know how many of them there are there's probably only a couple hundred but I've got one of them and, and realizing that my dad was right because even if that stuff isn't worth money to me, it, it's something I don't get to see every day. I get to see Teenage Mutant right. Ninja Turtles all the time, but that those early editions of Spider-Man, the beautiful way that they're drawn, which nobody draws comic books like that anymore, it was just wonderful to pull out of a box and kind of well, look at it. I know what I was going to say. The, uh, uh, I'm writing this book about Elvis Costello now and his first album, and, and that first album was on a label called Stiff Records. And Stiff were really interesting. They, they were... Um, a brand. They were the first record label as a brand that I came to recognize and say, well, if it's on Stiff Records, I'm probably going to like it. And because they sort of curated a very interesting roster of artists. Uh, Elvis Costello, Ian Drury, among them, Reckless Eric, lots of people like that. And, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens more, Nick Lowe. Um, but what was interesting about them is that they were small and they were independent in the 70s in a world where uh, the record industry really was ruled by these behemoths, these giant, uh, these giant companies. Trouble with those companies, though, is that they, they couldn't respond to what was happening very quickly because they were so big. Stiff could. Um, and so that's why they got, you know, Ian Drury out there in the world when, when he had been a failure virtually everywhere else. He'd made a, a number of other records. But Stiff understood what was interesting about him and that he had a fan base. And that, that he had a fan base who would collect stuff by him. So uh, not, I don't think it was his first Stiff album, but the second Stiff album came out and it had 12 different covers. And they knew that people would probably buy all of them to be, to be completists. And it was interesting. They didn't make all the uh, the covers available everywhere. You had to go. You had to travel. You had to work to find them a little bit. The first Elvis Costello album, My Aim is True, came out with, with uh, 12 or 13 different colors on the original jacket. Some were red. Some were blue. Some were orange. Cost them virtually nothing to do, and yet uh, created a collector's market for these artists that the major labels wouldn't even have paid attention to. And all of a sudden, you've got... 
collectors buying 12 copies of the same album. And this was long before, you know, now, Entertainment Weekly, every third issue is like, buy all four collectors' covers. And buy. this was long before all that. And, and at the time, it was a really savvy marketing move, I thought. Yeah, and I think it comes from a sense of fans wanting to preserve. Yeah. You know, the, the, you're, you're talking about a time in which, you know, most people felt that if they didn't keep uh, these things and take care of them, that it would just disappear. It would be gone. Uh, and you can't have that feeling about anything today, whether it be Game of Thrones or, you know, even Star Trek. I, whether I go to the store and buy the latest comic book about Star Trek or, or buy the latest little statuette to Game of Thrones, I don't really feel worried that 10 years from now I won't be able to find that again. Right, right. You know, everything is manufactured to such a degree and there are enough people who are not even removing it from its packaging and you have so many services like eBay that make it easy to hunt stuff down again that it's hard to really collect it in that same vein. Whereas, you know, back in, you know, go back 50 years and people are holding on to this because they think if they don't, it's just going to disappear. Yeah, and it's true. And But right now you're absolutely you know, there's. I used to. I used to like uh, collecting. I used to collect records, and I loved collecting records uh, pre eBay, pre internet even, uh, because um, uh, it, it was difficult to do, and there was a real thrill in the chase of it. I loved hunting down things. I liked having to write to collectors in Australia and say, "Do you have that James Brown Christmas record? I heard that you did." On a, I read it in a magazine. Uh, the magazine's two years old, but uh, I thought I'd get in touch again. All kind of stuff, and, and some stuff took years to track down, but eventually you would get it. Now a lot of the fun's just been taken out of it. But eBay, to me, while it's an interesting uh, source, and I, I bought stuff on eBay for the for the Devil's Book. I bought a bunch of stuff off eBay pictures and things like that. Uh, but um, uh, it, it, it's not as much fun clicking around and, going, and finding pretty much whatever you want almost instantaneously. Yeah, well, I do find I'm guilty of um, transferring a lot of my collecting habit to digital content because the one area I do find where things kind of wink out of existence is is video. That there's stuff that you know, whether it be old television shows, there's there's lots of programming that is created, and it just never is given a life beyond its initial broadcast. Right. We still have that with television, uh, and so you know, one example, one of the things that I I found was. Um, Terry Gilliam, filmmaker Terry Gilliam, about I think a couple of you know maybe 10, 15 years ago, ended up hosting a television series that was on the history of film, and it was aired I think once, and that was it. Wow. <laughs> the only uh, proof that it existed. I mean, you would type in Internet Movie Database and it wouldn't even be listed there. But if you you check, there would be film catalogs of film distributors in Europe that would say, well, back in 1986 we did this, did this. And fans of Terry Gilliam were trying to hunt this down. And what ended up happening was some guy in Australia ended up going into his garden shed and found a, a box of VHS tapes. He had no idea what was on them. And when he popped it in, somebody had recorded it off of television. And so based on that, it ended up being uploaded to the Internet. That's something that would, you'll never be able to buy it on DVD. It's never going to be broadcast on television again. And so for me, that becomes my new hunt is to try to find things like that. 
Uh, I don't have to worry about feeling guilt in that instance about piracy because it's not commercially available at all. In fact, this is something now is something that's lost. And if you don't have people making copies and distributing it, then it's never going to continue to have a life. You're going to have Terry Gilliam in an interview going, yeah, I, I, I did that thing a long time ago. I don't even remember it anymore. Who knows what happened to it? I don't have a copy. And yeah. so it's nice to know that these things kind of are being rescued and that becomes the new collectible. Yeah, yeah, I know it is. So, I mean, I, you know, the, the idea of stuff, I mean, now in the age that we live in, everything will live longer and burn a little bit brighter, probably. I don't know. But, you know, I have a, a, a guy, I, I like literally uh, someone who I don't think I've ever met even, uh, who sends me random stuff in the mail. He contacted me and said, I've got some cool stuff you probably want to see. And he knows I'm a David Bowie fan. And this arrived in the mail the other day, a package of these discs of stuff that, um, you know, uh, a Ken Russell miniseries, um, uh, David Bowie star special, BBC radio from 1970, it goes on and on and on and on and on, a lot of this stuff. And it was random. I mean, it just, it, it arrives out of nowhere. So, I mean, the stuff's out there in the world, it's, it's it's a, I guess the collectors now, the, 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 you know, the digital collectors are people that, that collect information and collect pixels and, and do interesting things with them. Well, the, 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 I guess the behavior is that we have people who go to stores and collect, and they're yeah. buying stuff that's freely available that's there. And then you have what I think is true collection, which is that it's right. almost an underground, closeted kind of thing. You're, you're hunting down stuff that just doesn't seem to be accessible anymore. There's a sense of preservation to it. You know, keep this alive. Don't let it disappear. Yeah, interesting. Um, uh, what else? I wanted to talk about, uh, now, you and I already had a chat a little bit about this, but there's, there's, it just it's a topic that keeps hitting me uh, again and again, which is face recognition or face identification. Um, and, and initially what got me thinking, well, I've been thinking about it for a very long time. I've been reading books about so I've been, you know, when computers first started to kind of go through a rise, I've been reading books like this called The Face that talk about how we as human beings recognize faces, how we develop faces, little micro expressions, and then the, the rise of computers trying to mimic that. Uh, and so I became very interested when after the, the Boston uh, events happened, yep that the, uh, the FBI, the authorities, re you know, revealed some of the details of their process of trying to sort through all that. And it was revealed that face recognition technology failed in that case. Right. That although they had pulled up images, very identifiable images from surveillance photo, um, video of the, the, the explosions, and although both brothers were in the system, one had a driver's license, the other one had already been fingerprinted and processed by the FBI about a year earlier, that the computer, which is designed to, to, to sort of match up those two images, failed to do so. That it had gone through all the, the databases of all the photographs of personal ID collected from American citizens and had failed to match them up to the photos that they had from surveillance. And that's a big thing. Uh, you know, people have talked about the events in Boston from all sorts of different angles, but I know as a technology person that that is huge because it's moments like this that help prove and advance technology. Right. Um, Telegraph, for example, had to have that kind of a moment. Uh, for some reason, when I, I research technology, I find that every new invention takes about 60 years before we're ready to kind of accept it. The, the poor guy who invented the zipper 
had to wait 60 years before it ended up becoming a staple in fashion right. because people thought zippers were aggressive, they were hostile, right. they would only put them on boots and it took 60 years before they ended up being on skirts and dresses and that kind of stuff. We're just really, really resistant to that kind of thing. And so the, the guys who invented the telegraph sensed that this was going to be a major technological revolution, but nobody wanted it because it was going to cost a lot of money to put the wires across Europe. Uh, the poles were ugly. There were lots of people, you know, even today people aren't happy about all the poles being in the, the, the landscape and ruining the view, which you can imagine in England. That's a big yeah. deal. You're ruining the view. And so it wasn't until a major tragedy happened. Uh, in the early 1800s, a man named Towel killed his wife. He poisoned her. And oddly enough, he dressed up in disguise to look like a Quaker and tried to make his getaway. Right. Uh, didn't make quite the clean getaway in that somebody spotted him, but it was enough that he could get to the train station and board the train. And in those days, that was the fastest thing in our world. Right. And so typically, it, the idea was that if he got on the train, no one could catch up to him. There was no way that you could have police officers jump in a car and try to beat the train to the, the next station. There was nothing like that. And so it, was, it would normally be assumed that he had gotten away with the murder. By the right. time he'd get off the next station, the trail would be so cold as he disappeared into the crowds of London, they'd never be able to find him. As it happened, though, the train station he got on was a test platform for telegraph cables. Uh, and when the police got there, they had the telegraph operator who, in 23 letters... That was it. That was the limit of, of his message. Sent a message to the next train station, giving a description. This is a guy who just committed a murder. He looks like a Quaker. When the guy got off the train, the whole platform was full of police officers. Wow. And that convinced everyone that, yes, we need to invest money. And within the next couple of years, there were 7,000 telegraph poles all across Europe. That was it. You had a hard time trying to explain to people why this technology was available. The fact that it could solve a murder in four minutes by sending a message across the, the, the countryside, that, that did it for people. Right. Up until that point, there were people doing presentations saying, look, right now if you want to send a letter to India, it takes three years. If we had telegraph cables, we could send that message in four minutes. Right. But people still didn't want to invest in that technology because of it. So for face recognition, which has been around for almost a decade now, this key moment, what happened in Boston, should have been the big pivotal proving ground for right. face recognition technology. That it failed means it's going to set back research and investment in that technology for a very long time. You know, we may now have to wait a couple more decades before we get the benefits of whatever that technology offers. Right, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I, people are... I think, typically speaking, uh, not well. I think typically speaking, resistant to change, even though the only constant is change. But it's interesting to me that now people are still. I mean, things change. I mean, I have to update my phone every two seconds because there's something new that it does. And you know, I'm uh, constantly getting letters. Uh, check your privacy settings on Facebook. Everything's you know constantly. Things are changing. Technology is such a part of everybody's lives now. You know. Uh, that the idea that something is new and scary to people now kind of is surprising to me. Well, we never, I mean, we don't invest in something just because it's new. As inventors do, they're always like, this is cool, look what I can do. But, the, you know, the rest of society generally doesn't care. And they may not be able to see the benefit right away. Uh, the other classic example is the car. Uh, the man who invented the first motorized cart 
couldn't give them away. Right. He had created this huge invention, drove it around town, and nobody really wanted it because part of it was that people were suspicious that the car, the thing would break down and you'd find right. yourself stranded out into the country, that there would be no services to kind of help you with this. Uh, and so for a brief window of time there, it was doomed to failure. The, the man who invented it was depressed. What changed it was his wife. One day just got so upset about the whole thing that she decided to go and visit her mother. And she jumped in the motorized car, <laughs> cart and drove it across town. Uh, and when she got there, it broke down, but she you know, managed to figure out how to fix it, got it going. When she got there, um, she ended up running out of fuel and went to the local pharmacy. And they sold petrol at that time because it was used for a number of things around households. She just bought a tank, filled up the car, visited her mom, and drove back. And that well-documented trip made everybody go, Oh, like, oh, you know, they suddenly started to kind of understand just what the real benefit might right. be, and it's that like, kind of helped. Otherwise, it could have been another 20 years before the, the, the car <laughs> could have entered into our society. And I think with face recognition, part of that difficulty is, I mean, you, you would expect that it would work, because the cameras you and I are looking at right now have face recognition. Right. We can turn on little features, and it'll add, you know, sunglasses and all sorts of virtual stuff. But there's a difference between recognizing that what's in front of the camera is a face and having to match a specific face to a database of other faces. Right. And part of that, uh, that, that uh, for us to try to understand is that we ourselves, in terms of how we recognize faces, are, it's very, uh, it, how we think we recognize faces is not actually how our brains recognize faces. It's very confusing. If you know what I mean. Well, I, I don't recognize faces. I mean, we talked about this uh, a week or so ago. I don't recognize faces. Yeah, I, it, it's not in my makeup to do that, and I don't know why. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I, uh, you know, people that um, you know, people that obviously people that I see over and over again, I, I recognize. But honestly, I can I can uh, you know have. Uh, uh, I can meet someone three or four times and then pass them on the street, and if they're out of context for me, it's like it's like I've never seen them before. And, and you may have a condition called prosopognosis. We, uh, we've talked, to, yeah. We, you yeah. were telling me about this. I don't know if it's that extreme. I just think that I'm uh, kind of you know absent-minded sometimes. Well, and the reason I'm talking about it today is because there's new research that was just published in New Scientist about prosopognosis. So for me, it's, it's you know this topic is everywhere I turn, but um, so within human beings, as it turns out, there's quite a range between different people in terms of how we recognize faces, which explains why you will encounter some people who are really good at remembering names but poor at faces. Why you may have the experience of going to a party and people that you know just seem to ignore you or treat you like you're rude. Um, for those of us who are in the public eye on television, you have all sorts of odd encounters and experiences with people who may not recognize you or may recognize you. Uh, half the women at CTV have that problem where they're always being misidentified as others. I mean, poor Marcy Ian, if uh, she has one more person come up and go, Andrea Case, I love your work, you know. <laughs> but as it turns out, so you have this wide range where you have some people who only recognize people based on two or three things. So the way their brain works is they may recognize you, Richard, based off of your hair, your glasses right. and your right. voice and that's it if you change one of those things they're completely thrown 
Well, you see, this happens all the time uh, to me. You know, you, you get those uh, uh, people who uh, they, they don't know what my name is. They have an idea of why they know me. They're like, uh, movie guy, I think. Where do I see you? I don't know. But they recognize the hair or the glasses or whatever. And that, that sort of thing happens all the time. And they, they are definite reference points. And, you know, for the 20 years that I've been on television up here, uh, I have not changed. I mean, the glasses change a, a little bit. But they are still kind of the same style because that is part of now – you know that this is my. I'm Ronald McDonald without the red hair and the thing. This is my brand. This is what people remember, and so I keep it. I keep it for the people. I do this all for the people, Chris. And and you know, in our case, we're we're running into people who may have seen us on television. Yeah. We've never seen them, and so yeah. I do find that people will. They kind of you know there there are little communications that are happening facially that we don't realize. Where I I see people who feel that they know me and they're looking at me waiting for me to kind of show some sign that I recognize them as well yeah. Yeah. to kind of give them better confidence and when you don't then it just you know the whole situation falls apart I find that as a general rule I mean uh, initially I, I, as I was walking down the street and people looked like they were trying to talk to me or recognize me I felt no you know I'm just some guy that comes on for four minutes a week nobody's ever going to recognize yeah. me and, and have this problem where that that's exactly what somebody's trying to do, and I come off like a jerk because I've, I've ignored them. So I'm now at the point where I'm kind of a friendly Bruce Banner, where yeah. just as Bruce Banner, is, is, his secret is to always be angry, I find that I, my secret is to always be friendly, that as I walk down the street, regardless of who you are, if you come over and try to talk to me, it's like I just assume you're a friendly person. So I'll, hi, how's it going, you know, to yeah, kind of smooth you. over that situation. Yeah, I do that too. I do that too. But I mean, I, I think uh, a lot of it for me comes from growing up in a very small town, which I was just in a few days ago for the first time in a long time. And Andrea and I, the PMC and I, were walking down Main Street. And, you know, it's not, uh, you're not passing a lot of people on Main Street. You're passing a number of people. We're not passing uh, a lot of people. And uh, every single one of them said hello. And I thought, you know, how unusual. I'd forgotten that in this small town, when you pass someone, you say hello. Yeah. You're friendly to people. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then you have on the other extreme, um, people who, the way they recognize faces is through intense detail. So it's right. not just that they recognize that someone may have thick eyebrows, but the actual shape of a person's eyebrows. Right. Or their, their mind, when they look at a, at a face, they're not just saying, this is a nose their mind is actually making little measurements. And right. all of that becomes very distinctive. So you have people who have tremendous memories for faces, that they'll meet somebody for 30 seconds, and then three years later may see them in a restaurant and go, I know that person. Right. Which is, you know, quite astonishing. But that, well, it is. I, I, you know, and, and I, again, I've tried things. I've tried that, like, you meet someone and you say their name three times. Chris, 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 Chris. There you go. I should be able to remember that. But no. You know, no. your name is easy uh, because of its unusual spelling. I always think of Chris Christopherson. Right. I don't think of you as a C-H Chris, but as a K Chris, you as know. As a K Chris. As a K Chris. And that is, that is, that is, uh, that, that is, oddly enough, was just, I mean, the, the, the K Chris spelling isn't that unusual, but it's unusual enough that that, it, that what we first met 10 years ago, whatever it was, a long time ago, that's, that stuck in my head. But, you know, I, I have this fear, this absolute fear of people's names. 
uh, of saying, you know, Jane, it's great to see you, and it's like, it's Jill, you know, or whatever, someone that I've met a hundred times. Or another thing that happens, and, you know, this, I mean, I don't think it's uncommon for people who are, uh, as you were sort of just saying, you know, when you're, when you're on television, you're in the public eye a little bit, people come up to you, and they don't necessarily always, they know you. They're like, Richard, Chris, good to see you. But they don't necessarily use their own, their name. And, and so they will call you by their name. And, and unless you ask, and I frequently do ask, but the, what often what happens frequently is you'll meet someone three or four times without ever really catching their name. And then it's too late to ask their name. You can't. You know, by the third time you've met this person and had lunch with them, you can't say, what's your name again? It's yeah. rude. So that's why, I'm, you know, I'm not exactly this guy, but I do say things like, dude, good to see you. You know, because I just, I don't know sometimes. And I'm afraid of using them on me. It's estimated that about 2.5% of society are, are people who, who have the condition of prosoprognosis, which means that they... Or, it's commonly known as face blindness. They have a really difficult time sort of identifying people solely based on their face. Most of them cheat. They kind of go off of hairstyles and clothing. Right. But uh, there's been a lot of research to try to understand how that condition develops. Some people are born with it. Other people, they only get it when there's a, an accident later on in life. Right. So there was a, a case of a woman who had to go to a hospital for a couple of weeks. She had surgery done. When she came home, uh, she found her house full of strangers. Right. It had changed something in her prefrontal cortex, and now her ability to kind of recognize people had, had pr pretty much been lost. I mean, she had to kind of learn new systems to do that. But the, the, the chilling thing about that is how the brain processes information in a way that we're not always aware of, that we think it's always a, a, a consciousness, that we're in control, but sometimes it's not. Because her situation and the one that she has to battle for the rest of her life is that there's still a part of her brain that doesn't believe the people in her home are actually who they say they are. That she's in a kind of a twilight zone scenario where there's a part of her brain that could believe the conspiracy that while she was in the hospital, her real husband and children were sent off and the government had sent replacements. Like we've seen in movies, you know, no, I really am your, your husband, that kind of a thing. Jesus, can you imagine that? I mean, you know, you, you hear these odd stories from time to time, like, a, you know, someone falls and hits their head, and then all of a sudden they have an English accent, you know, and that kind of thing. Like, you hear things like that all the time. And I'm sure it's weird and strange. There was a story on television a while ago about some woman who that had happened to, and now she says things like, Boogie Whale Right, you know, in a terrible English accent. Uh, but, you know, everyone seems to find it amusing, and it's not, you know, particularly detrimental to her life. This, on the other hand, I mean, I, you know, this this birthing of paranoia in you that would never go away is terrible. I mean, this is an awful thing. Well, even if you're you're born with it, it's something you tend not to become aware of until much later in life. Because right. all of us, what ends up happening is that uh, with friends and family, the immediate faces that you are exposed to growing up as a child, you end up sort of learning a shorthand. So right. you're no longer studying a person's face directly. Again, you're, you're just looking at maybe you know three distinguishing features, and that's right. it. Right. But the moment that you end up having to go to college or university, right. or in some cases, the moment that you become a parent, and that opens you up to a larger community of people, that's when people who have prosoprognosis start to really struggle. 
because they can no longer use that shorthand and so they're being forced to have to recognize faces for the first time and it's created a, a wild array of different scenarios there are parents who they will take their, their children to daycare and then come home and then when they go to pick them up can't pick their kid out from all the other kids in the, the classroom Wow! right and you know the, the, the teachers they're like what's wrong with you you can't find your own kid um, the, there's a research paper that's been published where researchers have now kind of found the area of the brain that seems to be responsible for this and unfortunately they found it because by applying magnetic um, signals and stimulation to it they can actually make it worse they haven't right. figured out how to make this, the condition better but they've learned that there's one part of the prefrontal cortex that is responsible for identifying features that's a nose that's an ear but there's another side that is responsible for understanding that that nose is in between two ears, that it does the, the spatial kind of stuff. But the one case they talked about, there's a woman who her prosoprognosis is so severe she can't recognize herself. Wow. Uh, what ended up happening, she said that... I would have my name tattooed backwards on my forehead, so when I looked in the mirror, it would say Richard, and I would be like, oh yeah, totally, that's me. She said what really drove it home was she was standing in an elevator. The elevator got to a floor, the doors opened, and she noticed that another woman in the elevator moved to get off. So she moved to the side to let that woman off, but that woman also moved to the side, and she suddenly realized there were mirrors in the elevator, and she was seeing her own reflection. And, and I mean, does, uh, how does this impact the rest of their lives? I mean, does she remember what she had for lunch? Does she, like, is her memory... Uh, affected in other ways, or is it just sort of specifically? So it's just faces. Just faces. That's so one of the uh, I've heard now accounts from a number of prosoprognosis, and it's almost like <laughs> you know your your initiation is that right. you end up going on a date, and you say you know I had a lovely time that was great, and you you're on your way home, and just happenstance you end up coming across that person again. Right and you breeze right by them because you don't recognize them. Wow. And so they have to go through that period where that person now feels like the date went wrong, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. things did not go well. Or the, the other scenario that often happens is that uh, one woman went to a, a restaurant because she had agreed to meet her boyfriend there. She walked in, spotted her boyfriend, walked over, gave him a kiss on the lips, put her arm around him, ended up talking, and then after about 20 minutes of listening to the conversation, realized, I don't know you, do I? <laughs> and you know, the gentleman kind of going, no, but I'm, I'm kind of enjoying my, myself in terms of having a conversation with you. And she having to excuse herself and then go off and try to really find uh, her boyfriend that evening. That happens a lot. Uh, the other thing is that they have a hard time watching movies because actors will change their clothes or change their hairstyle from one scene to the next. And so they become that person that's like, is that the person who just killed that person? You know, uh, so it's, 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 it becomes a condition that they have to kind of handle and, and, and sort of learn and specifically because people really, I don't know what it is, really can be offended if you do not recognize them. If you're at a party and you breeze past them, then you, that can cause all sorts of social issues. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you know, there, I, I, there, there was a, a well-known actor who, uh, and I've, I've talked about this before, who um, I've had a lot of interactions with we are we are friendly. We have had drinks together. We've met one another dozens of times, and yet occasionally he'll walk past you on the street. And other people have mentioned this to me. And it's not. I don't think that he has this memory. It's that he's very nearsighted or farsighted. Whatever he can't see very well. Uh, so, but it, 
it is that kind of weird, like social uh, awkward. You're like, did I do something? I don't know if I did something. Apparently, I did something. I don't know. It's terrible. Well, I've had to tell people um, because I I I'm not nearsighted, but I I tend to be introverted. Uh, although I, I I talk for a living amongst hundreds of thousands of people, and we're doing this broadcast here. The end of the day is that I do spend a lot of my time living in my head, and when I'm on the street walking. I tend to walk very fast, but I'm, I'm thinking about things. i got my own little theater that's going on there. So I tend not to pay attention when people are on the other side of the street going, Hey! Yeah. Uh, and I've had to, to explain to, to friends. It's like, if you see me, you know, by all means, don't feel bad about calling out my name. Feel free to come tap me on the shoulder. Uh, I may look very rude at first, but right. give me a moment and I'll, I'll return to the planet and I'll be happy to chat with you and hey, I think you're a great person. But I've had to do that <laughs> to explain I'm not being rude, I'm not ignoring you, I just, uh, it's, it's, it's a habit, it's how, you know, my own condition as it were. Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? I, 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 uh, I tend to get sort of lost in my own head a little bit. Um, uh, often. <laughs> and when I'm walking down the street, and you'll hear that, Richard, 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 Richard! You know, there are people yelling at you on the street trying to get your attention of, like, not being rude, just really thinking about something else for a minute. Well, and it's hard because, I mean, uh, with my name Chris, there's a lot of things that sound like Chris. Right. And uh, just the other night, I was passing a restaurant, and I had to hear that, Chris, 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 and you turn around, and it's somebody waving to the person behind me. Right. You know, and you, you, you're always trying to be defensive towards that. I don't want to look like the idiot that's just doing this because that's that's Everybody. horrible. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> and so I, you know, that that I guess we have to be a little more tolerant of the the three minutes of awkwardness as we try to figure out each other. But yeah. I, you know, I find um, just being sort of someone that's in the public eye that you become a fog for a lot of people. They know you from somewhere, but they can't remember where. They think it's in the real life. You know, if they put a television box around you. They'd be able to kind of recognize who you were. I, I went to an event that was held in an apartment building where they were holding a video game launch on the top floor, but the rest of the building was made up of residential floors. And uh, me and a journalist left, but got into the elevator, and the elevator paused at a floor. The, the doors opened, and this woman stepped on. And she looked at me, and whereas most people might go, hmm, where do I know that person? Because I guess the familiar place, this is where she lived, she just assumed I must have been a neighbor, somebody that she knew, and so she, you know, she stepped on, gave me a nod, I gave her a nod back, and she went, oh, by the way, John and Kathy are bringing the kids over tonight. You know, and it's just, you know, I kind of, yeah, okay, that'll be great. And then she got off the, 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 the elevator, completely satisfied with the conversation, by the way, walking away like, huh, that went well, okay, great. You know, this is going to be a good night because John and Kathy are here. This guy knows about it. And my, my friend and journalist Jason McIsaac was like, what was that about? <laughs> well, you know, it's just how it is. You just kind of, again. I guess that John and Kathy were disappointed that you weren't there later. I told them. You know? I guess. But again, yeah. it's, it's being the friendly version of Bruce Banner. You just have to always be familiar and always be friendly. And it's never, people are never, there are times where people are never really going to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, sometimes you try to help them because they, they really need to figure it out. Oh, I know you from somewhere. Was it the CBC? You're like, no, was it CTV? I, I, no, you know. I find that painful. And it happens. And, you know, like, and, well, it's funny because it can 99.9% .9 of the time for me, when people 
go, I know you someone. It's because they've seen me on television. I mean, it's just the way. I've been on TV every day for 20 years up here. It's just the way it is, right? And and I'm okay with it. I mean, just, you know, listen, I'm uh, I'm happy to be able to pay my rent, my, my mortgage uh, doing this. So this is really, I'm not in it to be, uh, you know, famous. Um, and, and at best, I'm well-known. And I like that. I like I have a I have a, the approximate level of well knownness that I need to be able to continue to do what I do in my job, and I like it this way. I'm very pleased with it. But sometimes to cut that conversation short, that like oh I know you now was it did you used to be on City TV or was it uh, to cut it short? I will just say well I review movies on television, and normally that triggers something in people. So uh, when we were renovating this place. Um, I would stop by every day uh, just to make sure that everything was okay. But we, you know, were sort of between places. I was living in a hotel for part of it, and uh, um, you know, we were we were kind of all over the place. And so I didn't have anywhere to go during the day if I wasn't, uh, you know, because normally I spend a good chunk of my day writing. So I had to find other places to go and write. So I would go to the big Loblaws. Uh, the new one, the Maple Leaf Gardens Loblaws. It was quite new then. They have great Wi-Fi. There's food there. There's everything you need. And so I was going there a lot. And so this woman comes up to me one day and says, I know you. And I'm like, and I think I was in the middle of doing something. And I'm like, well, I do review movies on television. She's like, no, 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 no. You're here every day. <laughs> I'm like, you're at Loblaws like every single day. I'm like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. <laughs> oh, you pretentious! No oh, yeah. yes, pretentious knob. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I review movies on TV. Yeah, but I see you in the cereal aisle like every single day. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, it doesn't happen so much now, but for a long time, I used to get emails from people any time somebody talked about tech on TV. Right. And they would think it was me. And so they would write to me and say, I just saw you on City TV. I'm like, I don't do City TV. But you were talking about this thing. I don't know what it was. And, of course, they can't describe it at all. Yeah. Oh, it, was, it was this magical box that guesses people's middle's name and transmits it on Twitter. I need more information about that. And I would have to write back to them and explain. I, I'm sorry, based on your description, I don't know what you're talking about. But also, that wasn't me. Uh, right. you know, I, I got to the point where I had to remind people, it's like, I wear glasses. I know there are other people out there they don't wear glasses. I wear glasses. That's the little look for that. Yeah. If the guy had glasses, then it was me. But they swear up and down, like, no. I've, I've watched you for many years on Canada Am. I know who you are. I saw you on TV. You talked about this. Why are you you know, you're messing around with me? Why don't you just give me the information I'm looking for? Because they will not accept that, you know, when I write back and say, that wasn't me. It really wasn't, it wasn't me. I want to help you. Yeah, I know. I would help you, but I can't because it wasn't me. But so all this explains why it's so tough for computers to try to duplicate this when our brains, which are far more <laughs> circle back, yeah, <laughs> yeah, at doing this kind of task, just how difficult it must be for for computers. That even though they're at the point now where they can recognize a face, we have blink detection in mm. cell phones. We have computers that you know can can look at it at a face in three D, even from side to side, and create you know high resolution profiles and stuff. It's still impossible for a computer to take one image and look at a million other images and be able to get any kind of reliable match. So I don't know how long it's going to take for them to actually kind of solve that, that issue, but it shows just the complexity of some tasks that we take for granted as being so simple.
well, until they're able to start mapping the actual pores on your face or something, that that's, you know, and, and creating like a really accurate roadmap, that'll be it, you know? Yeah, no, remarkable stuff. So I think we've reached the end. That's it for this week on Hey All You Zombies. Check out the website, heyallyouzombies.com. Uh, there will be things there, things to enjoy. Thing? Yes, well, you know, we, we had posted a while back about the Night, uh, Night of the Living Dead Live, so there's right. lots of things that we'll let you know about upcoming events. Uh, and thank you, thank you, thank you. People continue to subscribe to the, the channel. They continue to give likes. We've gotten comments. I appreciate that uh, tremendously because it, it does really help. And if you have comments and you have suggestions of things that you'd like Richard and I to talk about, we're completely open to that. Uh, you don't, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't have to recognize our face to be able to send us an email and give us that kind of information. Uh, that'd be wonderful. And so I guess we'll, we'll see you again next week. See you later.